0: Um, If you're visiting, my name is Steve Also. Also is not my last name. I just mean in addition to the Steve that's already come up. So, uh, welcome. We're glad you're with us. This morning, before we dive into the message, you know, one of the best parts of being a part of this fellowship. is just the way they reach out, uh, we reach out around the world. And, you know, it doesn't take long hanging out here, and you just realize there's always moving pieces, moving parts, moving people. And so even today... The tour team's out, Pastor Mike, Pam, and many from the fellowship are down in Aurora, Colorado, ministering. Come Tuesday, many of that team, along with Pastor Steve Miller, will be heading to Uganda and ministering there. I think they're going to be gone for 10 days. The Jordan and Jordan team cuts out of here on Tuesday, I think, to head to San Jose. And myself, Chris, and Sydney actually just got back from Cambodia. So, you know, um, to be a part of a small little fellowship in this little corner of northwest Montana... And to consider all that we get to be a part of in the kingdom of God. In the impact we're making around the world. It's really an astounding thing. Um, I know of churches where the pastor of the church has never been out of the country. And yet, we, it seems like weekly are sending people out of the country on behalf of the Lord. So it's a blessing for sure. With that, I do want to bring Pastor Steve up. And um, he'll be the representative this morning of the Uganda team because all the rest of them are actually gone this week and ministering. And he's going to be meeting up with them. So let me tell you who's on that team. You obviously have Pastor Mike and Joanna and Pastor Steve. You have Megan Cole, Ryan Fowler, Paige, Jordan's wife, Austin. um, Josh Ochen um, is going back for a brief time. And then they're going to be joined by a pastor out of um, Florida, Keith Pintar. Um, And Pastor Mike and Keith are actually doing a crusade while they're in Uganda. So I think that's everybody. Did I miss anyone? So we're going to pray for that team. And as I said, embodied in this man right here. Are all those people? So I don't know how he's standing still. Just with Pastor Mike with him. Right? All right. I won't tell him you did that. Let's pray. Father, we do just come before you humbly and thank you that you use the likes of us to spread your good news around the world. And you give us the honor, the privilege, the opportunity to be tools in your hands and to consider that you don't leave us even just many times in our home cities, but you give us opportunity to go outside of our home cities, to go outside of our states, to go outside of our countries, to reach out to those who need to hear of you. And so as... Pastor Mike, Pastor Steve, and the whole team prepare to head out on Tuesday to Uganda. We pray, Lord, that you would first prepare their hearts and their minds and their bodies for that trip. That you prepare the hearts and minds of those that they'll minister to. That you would go before them empower, and that, Lord, you would use them mightily in their time on the ground. And, Lord, even as they're there, you would let them see you in all that they're a part of. And may they glorify you. Go before them, strengthen them, and bring them Back to us safely, we pray in Jesus' name. And everybody said, Amen. 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 So be praying for them as they head out. And I think they leave on the 16th and get back on the 24th. So. All right, if you have your Bibles with you, and you should, because we are at church and we do study the Bible, um, open it up to Hebrews chapter 5. If you don't have a Bible in the pew in front of you, or in your case, in the pew behind you, there are some Bibles. Open up to Hebrews <clears throat> Chapter 5, we're going to continue on from there. Um, as you turn there, as I mentioned, Krista, Sydney, and myself just got back from Cambodia. Ashley traveled over with us, but we left her there <laughs> on purpose. She's there to serve with Brittany who had gone over about a week before. And they're going to be seeing, overseeing our intern team. I wish I could stand up here all morning and just share with you about the trip. But for me, just an incredible opportunity to go back. It was four and a half years for me since I had been there. After being a part of the initial teams that got the ministry up and operating. So it was incredible to see what the Lord has done. We got into four of the villages that we minister in, of the seven, some of those villages didn't even have church buildings. Um, One of those villages wasn't a village we were ministering in the last time I was there. So to go back, see the church buildings, meet the pastors, again, see the kids um, that come five days a week, four days a week and receive ministry. Was just incredible to scout out new territories to experience Cambodian traffic on a holiday weekend. Everybody should have that experience. <laughs> what should have taken two hours and 45 minutes took just short of seven hours in a van because on holidays, everybody leaves the main city of Phnom Penh and goes to their villages. Of course, we planned our trip right in the middle of that and needed to go out to those villages. And so that was interesting. Two-lane road turned into a four-lane road three lanes going one way out of the city, one lane going down the, what we would call the shoulder of the road for those few people that were heading the other way. So you got to know the people in the cars next to you, waving at each other, smiling, seeing what they were eating for lunch. So, it was an incredible trip, and uh, certainly one that I believe was needed, but also just um, impactful for them, but more so for us. So, Anyway, Hebrews chapter 5, let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for your word. Thank you, Lord, for all that you let us be a part of. And Lord, even as we would consider the text this morning, Lord, you placed a calling on all of our lives to be ministers, to be a testimony to take forth your gospel, to be your witnesses in this world. In Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost. And you have a place in your kingdom and in your plan for each of us. And Lord, you call us to yourself and you call us to grow. And so, Lord, as we study your word, Would you use it to teach us, to grow us, and to shape us more into those men and women of God that you called us to be? And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So as we pick up in Hebrews chapter 5... Remember, the writer writer of Hebrews, depending on who you believe that is, and we won't get into that discussion again this morning, we know ultimately the Holy Spirit was the writer of the book of Hebrews, even though we may not have definitive proof who the earthly writer was ultimately, it should be enough to know that the Holy Spirit penned this book. And as it was being written to a group of people, the Hebrews, many of which have now started out on a journey with the Lord, but have begun to shrink back from their walk with Christ and turning back to the old ways of Judaism, the writer is systematically trying to put before them that Jesus, this one Jesus, is greater than anything that you've looked to before as you've walked with God. So it started out, he's greater than the prophets, and then he's greater than the angels, and greater than Moses, and greater than Joshua. And now as we turn uh, to chapter 5, he's going to say he's greater than the priests. He's greater than Aaron. He is the ultimate high priest. And as you've looked to the priests and the high priests, as that one who can draw you and lead you into a deeper relationship with God, Jesus is greater than even them. And it bears from importance that we understand a little bit about the priesthood, right? You remember that uh, Jacob, or Israel, had twelve sons. One of those twelve sons was Levi, who would eventually become known as the priestly tribe. Levi had three sons, Gershon, Kohath, and Merari. Those three sons, or those three tribes of the tribe of Levi had responsibilities in the tabernacle and eventually within the temple. And each of them had specific tasks that they would take care of. Um, Let me just, I have them jotted down here. So the family of Gershon had care of the tabernacle's veil the fence, and the curtains within. The family of Kohath had care of the tabernacle's furnishings, such as lampstand, the altar of incense, and the Ark of the Covenant. The family of Merari had care of the boards, pillars of the tabernacle, the fence. And so each of those families had specific roles. But each of those families weren't, as it were, priests, though they were a part of the priestly tribe of Levi, because it was Aaron of the tribe of Kohath that God had called forth from the very beginning to be that priestly line within the tribe of Levi, within the tribe of Kohath. And every priest and every high priest was to come from the lineage of Aaron. Are you with me? You guys got that, right? Do I need to repeat it? That is the Aaron who was with Moses, right? Right? And so as we consider the priesthood, just know that ultimately it's God who determined who the priests were. It's God who called forth Aaron, and then it was the sons of Aaron. So as we begin to read, it wasn't up to man who the priests would be. It wasn't up to man who the high priest would be ultimately through God's sovereignty, he himself selected from the foundations of the world, as it were, who the priest would be. And he's the one that called them forth. So let's read. For every high priest taken from among men is appointed for men in things pertaining to God, that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can have compassion on those who are ignorant and going astray, since he himself is also subject to weakness. Because of this, he is required, as for the people, so also for himself, to offer sacrifices for sins. And no man takes this honor to himself, but he who is called by God, just as Aaron was. So, as he begins the discussion here, he first establishes, okay, who are the priests? Where do they come from? What is their role? How are they established? Because what he wants to do is make a comparison then between the priests and between Christ or Jesus. And so he says, first off, these priests. What are their role? Let me give you their role in short. The priest's role was to represent God to the people and people to God. Does that make sense? The priest's role role was to represent God to the people. The priest was appointed from among men, not from angels, but from among men of like nature of man, for men, And then it says, "...in things pertaining to God." It was the priest's role to represent the things of God to the people, but also to bring the cares and concerns of the people to God. So we read that in the opening verses. "...every high priest taken from among men is appointed for men in things pertaining to God, representing God to the people, and also that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices, bless you, for sins, representing the people to God. Now there's two types of Offerings, as it were, that the priests would bring. They would bring forth just offerings before God, and then they would bring forth sin offerings for God as well. You have to understand, one of the most bloody places on the face of the earth was the temple of God. Blood flowed all the time. In the temple. And it was people bringing forth their wave offerings, their thanks offerings, the offerings at the harvest for God's blessings upon them. And those were offered up before the Lord on the altar. And those were just thank offerings before God. And then there were those offerings of atonement for sin. And so this was the role of the priest. And then the role of the high priest was once a year to go behind the veil into the Holy of Holies and offer up the atoning sacrifice first for himself that he would be cleansed and then for the people that their sins would be covered over And so that happened once a year on the day of atonement. And it says here that the high priest himself could have compassion on those that were ignorant in going astray, since he himself is also subject to weakness. This is why it was important that the priest be a man or of the same nature of those that he was representing. Because if he was going to go in and represent the people to God, he himself had to, in essence, be of that same nature and experience, the same as them. And so the heart of the priest would be one of compassion because as he came before God on behalf of people who were ignorant of the things of God or wandering off the path, he himself could come and understand and have compassion because he was of like nature. He knew himself. And he knew that he himself could be drawn away and stumble and fall as well. And so it's interesting when you consider that that's tied to compassion. One of the greatest tools we can have as individuals when we're dealing with people like ourselves who fall short. Is that realization that we ourselves fall short? Uh, it changes and frames the whole conversation. I've talked to I talk to people all the time who would ask me, "How do you handle difficult times, difficult conversations? How do I talk to this person who's hurt me or offended me or?" in some way, has fallen into sin. And one of the first things I tell them is before you ever have, have the conversation, remind yourself of who you are. Remind yourself of how it is you yourself have fallen. Maybe in similar ways. Because as you remind yourself of your nature that immediately puts your heart into that position of compassion and humility and reframes the whole conversation. How can you be judgmental of another person when you yourself have done the exact same thing before, right? And it reframes how you deal with people when you remind yourself that you, like them, are of similar nature. And so the high priest's role was to represent God to the people and the people to God, but to continue to remind himself that he was of the same nature as they were so that he would be compassionate in his ministry. And so... He himself also subject to the same weaknesses. And because of that, he is required for the people, so also for himself, to offer sacrifices for sin. And then he says this, the writer says, And no man takes this honor to himself, but he who is called by God. And that's that point that I was trying to make in the opening, that God himself established who the priestly lineage would be. Aaron didn't call himself and wake up one morning and go, you know what, Moses, we need a high priest. I feel like I should be the high priest. What do you think, Moses? It was God that appointed Aaron as the high priest. It was God that selected the family of Aaron from the tribe of Koath, from the tribe of Levi, to be that priestly family, that priestly lineage. And it was his son that would follow in his footsteps and his son's son and his son's son and his son's son. No one ever called themselves. And we do have instances where people try to call themselves, and God always dealt with that harshly. You can check out Korah and the rebellion of Korah, and you will quickly begin to understand that Korah tried to usurp the position of Aaron, and God slapped him down. Or you have Saul, King Saul, who tried to fill the role of the priest, and God shut him down. And so we have other instances as well where we see man trying to rise up and establish himself in the position of high priest. But ultimately, no one fills that position but that they are called by God. Now, you might be sitting here wondering or saying, what does that have to do with me? First off, I'm not of the tribe of Levi, of the tribe of Kohath, and Aaron's not my great, 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 fill in the blank, how many greats, grandfather. So what does that have to do with me? Well, I'm mindful of the fact, first off, and in the New Testament, it says we are priests. We are a a royal priest before the Lord. Now, not priest in the sense of the Old Testament um, case, but we are those who are called to represent God to the people and take people in prayer to God. We are here to display who God is. And beyond that, God places callings upon each and every one of our lives, and we are to interact, as it were, within the temple in those roles that God has for us. You see, the Bible says this body, though it doesn't look like it, and though there are times it doesn't feel like it, this body is the temple of God is the temple of the Holy Spirit. And if everybody were to take a look around just for a second, go ahead, turn your head, look around, you see a bunch of temples of the Holy Spirit. And cumulatively, we're a large temple of the Holy Spirit. And God has called each of us to have a specific place, a specific role, a specific calling as we interact within the temple to fulfill the calling he has on our life. How many times, don't answer the question, how many times do we look at somebody else's calling and say, I wish I had that. How many times do we look at the quote unquote high priest and say, I want to be high priest, when in reality God has given us a calling not to be high priest, but to be some other fill some other role within his kingdom. My question is, do you know what God's called you to? Have you taken time to seek the Lord and understand who He's called you to be, what He's called you to do, what is your role, what is your place within the kingdom of God, within the plan of God? Have you taken time to figure that out And then if you have, are you satisfied and locked into fulfilling that role that he has for you? Not looking to the left, not looking to the right, not looking over at Jordan and saying, Man, I wish I could play the guitar and sing like him. I want his giftings, I want his talent, I want his position. No, I really do. I want his hair. (laughs) Right? How often do we despise the calling that God puts on our life by wanting someone else's instead of just fulfilling the calling that he's placed on our lives? Each of you are unique. Each of you have been uniquely created specifically by God to fulfill a role in His kingdom to His glory and for your good. No man appoints himself the very fact that I stand up here occasionally and get to teach the Word of God, trust me, I am the most shocked person in the room. If you think I set out to be up here, you'd be entirely wrong. I didn't take speech classes in high school because I don't like standing in front of people talking. But God has a calling on my life, a place in his kingdom that puts me in this position on occasion to have the blessing to share his word. If I set out to get into this position, It wouldn't be of God, but it's God who does the calling. It's God who does the establishing. And so no man set out to call himself, as it were here in the book of Hebrews, to be high priest. That was established by God. But for us today, what does that mean to us? He has a calling for us as well. Do we know it? Are we fulfilling it? And more importantly, are we satisfied with filling the role that God has for us? It's important that we know it. It's also equally important that we fulfill it. I often ask myself, who's the most selfish person on the face of the earth. I've come to be convinced it's the person who knows God and knows what the giftings of God are in their life, but chooses to not use it on behalf of God. Right? It's the it's football season, right? <clears throat> By the way, the Patriots play today. at You all can root for them. Um, Actually, 6.20 kickoff. Not that I'm counting. It's the wide receiver who takes off running at full speed on a fly pattern, beats the defensive back, quarterback, Steps back, he throws the pass, perfect spiral, 60 yards downfield. And while running full speed straight ahead, the wide receiver is able to look back over his shoulder while running forward at full speed. Watch that football come into his hand, catch it, and, and go into the end zone. And then, after spiking the football and doing some inane dance in the end zone, starts doing this. And I watch that and I go, what part in that did you have? God created you to be able to run that fast. God created you. With the capacity to run that fast and look backward without tripping over your own feet. God created you with the hand-eye coordination to catch that football. And oh, by the way, God created the quarterback that could throw the football that far and be that accurate. What part did you have in that? You should best just fall on your face in the end zone, raise your hands to heaven, and give praise to God that you have that ability. Yet how often as Christians gifted by God do we use the gifts of God to further our agenda and not God's. All the while, the giftings and the calling were of God from the very beginning. Oh, may it never be so with us. Amen? And then he gets into the comparison. So also, or in like manner... Christ did not glorify himself to become high priest, but it was he who said to him, you are my son today, I have begotten you. As he also says in another place, you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. So the Jewish mindset would have been Who is Jesus that you would call him high priest? Jesus isn't of the lineage of Aaron. He's not even of the tribe of Koath or the tribe of Levi. He's of the tribe of Judah. He's not even of the priestly tribe. What right do you have to call him? the ultimate high priest, capital H, capital P, um, because he doesn't fit within the structure, as it were, that we were given by God. So the objection of the Jewish mindset would have been, okay, Jesus is a great guy. He's done maybe some great things, But he can't possibly fill the role of high priest in a person's life because he doesn't fit within the structure. The writer of Hebrews, understanding that, sets out to undermine it and to establish that Jesus can and is ultimately the high priest. And the way he does that Is this, first and foremost, he says it wasn't Jesus that called himself to be high priest. In fact, it was God the Father himself that established Jesus as the high priest. And he says, for instance, when he says, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Jesus was always to be the high priest. But as, at his resurrection, he stepped into that role of being our high priest. Now, the Jew might say, what right does he have? Well, first and foremost, here's his first right. It was the Father who called him to the position. And before you object to that, let's make sure you understand, it's the Father who established the priesthood to begin with. So if the Father is the one establishing the priesthood, and he selected among men Aaron, could not the Father also select Jesus, his son, because it was the sons of Aaron who became high priest, we're talking about the very Son of God. Could he not call him to be the high priest? And then he says this, that was from Psalm 2, and then Psalm 110, you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Now, I don't want to dive too much into Melchizedek because a couple chapters from now, somebody, I don't know who that will be, is going to have the blessing of telling you all about Melchizedek. So I won't dive into that except to say this. Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, came and received tithes and offerings from Abraham. Pause. Did Abraham come before or after Levi? Not a trick question, huh? Before, right? So, this one Melchizedek, who predates the priestly tribe of Levi, who was himself described as a king and a priest of the Most High God, who. Abraham gave tithes and offerings to predated the actual priestly tribe of Levi. And it is of that order, God says, that Christ came. Melchizedek was a priest forever. Jesus, he was a type, as it were, a typology of Christ, Christ being our priest forever. So not only is Jesus greater because he's the son of God, not only is Jesus greater than the high priest because he was called of God, he's greater than the high priest because no son of Aaron ever lived forever. And therefore, their priestly reigns would come to an end. But Jesus is of the the same nature as it were, his priestly reign of Melchizedek. He's of the order of Melchizedek. And so therefore, we see in the same manner that the earthly priests were established in their position, so also is Christ established. But his priestly reign is forever. Who, meaning Jesus, verse 7, in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with vehement cries, in tears to him who was able to save him from death and was heard because of his godly fear. Though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things he suffered. And having been perfected, he became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him called by God as high priest according to the order of Melchizedek, of whom we have much to say and hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. So, verses 5 through 10 are a mouthful, right? We could spend hours upon hours just dissecting those verses alone. But as we pick up in verse 7, the writer draws us back to the scene of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, who in the days of his flesh, in that garden, offered up prayers and supplications, vehement cries and tears to him who was able to save him From death. And you remember that scene, right? Jesus in the garden crying out to the Father, the weight of the sin of the world being pressed down upon him. And he's crying out to the Father, If there be any other way, Father, let this cup pass from me. And then he utters the words, Not my will, but your will, Father, be done. And it was in that time when he was crying out, as it says here, to the Father, that he was crying out to the one who was able to save him from death. Now, I don't believe Jesus was trying to get out of the act of dying, he knew that was his mission from the beginning, to come and to die for the sins of the world. So it wasn't the saving from physical death that Jesus was concerned with. It was the the saving from the separation that dying in sin brings the spiritual death, as it were, that he was crying out to the Father. Remember, it's sin that separates us from the Father. It's our sin that separates us from the Father. It was our sin that was placed upon the sinless one, and Jesus was experiencing that separation, as it were, that could come, and experiencing for the first time the actual ramifications of sin in life personally. Intellectually, as it were, Jesus could ascend to the fact that sin brought separation. But now as a man, he senses that separation. And he's crying out to the Father, if there be any other way, let this cup pass from me. The the victory over death is found in his words, not my will, but your will. Be done. So he's crying out to the one who can save from this spiritual death, and testimony of his resurrection proves out that his prayers were heard. And then, interestingly, in verse 8, he says, Though he was a son, Yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. Jesus learned obedience by the things that he suffered. There's a difference between Jesus and us. We learn obedience through things that we suffer because where we come from a position many times of disobedience. Our nature, our fleshly nature wars against the things of God, pushes us towards disobedience, and we learn to obey many times through suffering. Jesus did not come From a position of disobedience. He'd never been disobedient. So when it says that he learned um, obedience through his suffering, that is him, that is the writer saying that he can identify with us, in that he physically, in human form having taken upon the nature of man can sense the temptations. Remember earlier it says that we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses but in every way was tempted as we are yet without sin. In his bodily, within his body, within his humanity, Jesus was tempted in every way that we are. And therefore, through his sufferings, he was able to experience that act of choosing obedience over disobedience, even though he was sinless. And again, that correlates with what it says in the opening verses, where it says, the priest must come from me on, from among men. Jesus had to choose to humble himself and take on the form of man. Because otherwise, we would sit here and say, Jesus, you don't understand. You don't go through what we go through. You don't experience what we experience. But this passage makes it clear. No, he did experience everything we experience. And he learned what it means to be obedient to the Father through his suffering. Now, one side note in that, that's not comfortable for you and me. I know that we'd like to believe that when we follow Jesus, when we come to Jesus, that we never have to suffer. But the reality is, if the Son of God suffered, so too suffering, unfortunately, is going to be part of our earthly experience as well. And in fact, it's one of those things through which God will use to put us through the refiner's fire that we can choose him over ourself and become more like Jesus. And so it says there, He learned obedience by the things which He suffered. And having been perfected, He became the author or the divine cause of eternal salvation to all who obey Him. So as He obeyed the Father, now He calls us to obey Him And to all who obey him, we receive the gift of eternal life, of eternal salvation. Who obey him, called by God as high priest, according to the order of Melchizedek. And then the writer switches and says this, Oh, by the way, There's much I want to share with you about Melchizedek. It's a little hard. It's a little deep. And right now, you're not really in the position to hear it. Because you, what does it say there? Since you have become dull of hearing. Now, one word I want you to underline, if you're a... Underliner, and it's the word become. Since you have become dull of hearing, what does the word become imply? Huh? Sin. Well, it definitely implies sin, but a little bit more simplistic than that. Come on. They weren't always that way. If you become something, it means you weren't that before. Good job, Kendra. You get a start today. (laughs) So these were people that at one point the writer would have said, hey, let's talk about Melchizedek because you're ready to receive it. But something happened. Sin happened. Drifting happened. Getting off the path happened. And they became dull of hearing. Such that now they're in a state where it's like, we got some work to do before you're ready for the deeper things of God. Look where he goes. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God. And you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But solid food belongs to those who are of full age. That is, those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. So as he's writing, he's writing to a group of people. And he's talking about the deep things of God. And he wants to go deeper with them. But he's like, you guys aren't ready for it. Because through turning back to the old ways through sin, through getting your eyes off of Jesus, through choosing yourself over the things of God perhaps trying to move in the areas that God wouldn't have you move into, rather than being satisfied with fulfilling the role God has for you, you are now in this place of being dull of hearing. And you are once again reverting back to being babes in Christ. Where once you had taken a milk and then moved to porridge and then moved to soft foods and eventually were non on T-bone steaks, you're now back to you can only take milk. When you should be in a position to be disciplers, looking and instructing and leading other people, you yourselves now are back in a position where you need to be the one disciple. And as a result of that, it says here, everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. Ultimately, these people drift in, as I read it, from the truth of the Word of God. As you sit here this morning, I'd ask you to evaluate where you're at with the Lord. When I think of this word dull, I think of gray. Right? It's just kind of, Eh. It's kind of like, oh well. It's kind of like Eeyore, you know. Thanks for noticing me. (laughs) It's kind of that life where you meander around and there's no real excitement. You hear the Word of God, but it doesn't really burn within you. You look around you And life just seems ho-hum. It seems drab. It seems dreary. It's Montana in the middle of winter. If you can't ski. That's me. It's like, what's the use? These gray skies and the snow that's falling from the sky. What's the point? And maybe that describes your life. You profess Christ, but if you had to honestly describe your life today, you'd describe it as dull, drab, gray, your. I put before you that perhaps You've drifted from the Word of God. The Word of righteousness. You've become dull of hearing. It's not that you can't hear. It's that you're not listening. There's a difference, right? Those of us guys that are married in the room... We know the difference because every single one of us has probably heard our wife say, you're not listening to me. Mm. It's not that you didn't hear her. (laughs) It's that it didn't sink into your heart and take action within you. And if the rest of you think you're getting off Scott Free, you're not because all of you have been kids and you've surely heard your parents say that. You're not listening to me. It's not that you didn't hear them. You just didn't take to heart what it is they were saying. It's not that even this morning you don't hear the word of God. The question is, are are. Are you listening to the Word of God? I almost brought my two passports this morning, but I didn't. And the point was going to be this. I have two passports. One that expired, but didn't have any more room in it anyway for additional visas into other countries. My present passport, if I take one more trip, I'm probably going to have to renew it early because I'm going to be out of pages. And unless you have a place they can stamp, you got to Get a new passport or have new pages sewn in it. I've lived a colorful life in Christ. I just got back from Cambodia. I gotta tell you, life is colorful. Pastor Steve, life is gonna get really colorful for you. Really fast. They wear bright colors over there. (laughs) But I'm not talking about color you see with your eyes. I'm talking about color you see with your heart. I'm looking over here and see a bunch of young people that have just made their way back from the mission field. Life became a whole lot more colorful. But the only way life becomes more colorful is to hear the Word of God, obey the Word of God, walk in the things of the Word of God, fulfill the calling God has on your your life, and not allow for yourself to drift from it. It's no coincidence that when God was calling Joshua, To lead the nation of Israel, his instruction was, be bold, be courageous. Hide the word of God in your heart. Do not turn from it to the left or to the right, but meditate on it day and night. It's the word of God that creates color in our lives. And as believers, if we're living the Eeyore life, that is only because we've lost sight of the Word of God and who it is that's called us, Christ himself, our great high priest. And so the instruction of the writer here would be turned back to the word of righteousness. Because solid food belongs to those who are mature. I have a grandson that's one year old. I have two more grandkids on the way. But one of the exciting times of being a parent, and I've got to go through this time four times myself, is to watch the child go from milk to porridge to solid foods and then be sitting at the table And have them be going, oh, oh, and everybody's jumping up trying to pat them on the back because the solid food's getting stuck in their throat. (laughs) But there's something wrong if a child gets to be two years old, three years old, 14 years old and they're still just drinking milk. Solid food belongs to the mature. We should be maturing as believers. In other words, that is, those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and And evil. And therein lies the key to the colorful life. It's listening and hearing the Word of God. And then turning around and using the Word of God in your life. It's just not enough to hear, but you need to use it. As well. In fact, for me, the simple definition, I'll close with this thought the simple definition of wisdom is this rightly applied biblical knowledge. When I take the Word of God and apply it in my life, it becomes wisdom to me. And it also becomes then wisdom that I can impart to others. How is it we can live the colorful life? How is it we can fulfill the calling as we've talked about that God has in our lives? It starts with being people of the word. Not just hearers, but also effectual doers of the word. That springs out into living a life on behalf of Christ, fulfilling the calling that he has on each of our lives and glorifying our high priest Jesus through our lives. Amen. Father, thank you for who you are and for your word and all you're doing. May you, Lord, continue to minister to our hearts the things of you. Lord, may we, as we've talked about, be people of your word, fully committed to you, grounded in your word, using your word, that we might be those you can use to lead others and to help others grow in the things of you. We love you, Lord. We thank you for this time. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Why don't we stand and close in worship?